Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Listen. The Lord is calling to the city and to fear your name is wisdom. Heed the rod and the one who appointed it. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house, and the short ephah which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonoured scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied. Your stomach will still be empty. You will store up but save nothing. Because of what you save, I will give it to the sword. You will plant but not harvest. You will press olives but not use the oil. You will crush grapes but not drink the wine. You have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. You have followed their traditions. Therefore, I will give you over to ruin and your people to derision. You will bear the scorn of the nations. Thank you, Wayne. Cracker of a passage, cracker of a book. I love Micah. But do you know what? It would be a shame. It would be a shame if we walked away from the series appreciating a work of literature and history but not being profoundly challenged by its message. And I think of a, a story told by the Danish um, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard um, and he tells this story uh, and to, to listen to it, you need to imagine for a second that we're in a theatre. Uh, it's a dark theatre, we're all kind of restlessly getting our seats and the audience falls silent and the spotlights find the stage and on comes a clown. Clown, full, dressed up as a clown. He looks really anxious and he delivers his opening line. There's a fire, you need to get out. 
the silence for a moment and then someone in the back laughs and then another. And then he tries again. No, 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 you don't understand. There's a fire. You're all going to die. You need to get out. And this time there's riotous laughter. They think this is the most hilarious thing ever. And he tries again, but at that stage no one is listening to him. They're all applauding. But of course, he is a clown and he is one of the actors, but he's not pretending. There is a fire and the flammable paints on the sets and the curtains are about to go out in smoke and they're all sitting there not moving. And actually, uh, if you look in the kind of news archives, you can find examples of this very thing happening. People in a theatre when men wielding Kalashnikovs came on stage at a death metal concert in 2015. Or a 2019 comedian who made a joke about dying on stage and then promptly fell over on stage. There actually were two doctors in the audience but they did nothing because they thought it was all part of the show. Wouldn't it be a shame? Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we were to hear and appreciate the words of Micah and not hear that he is speaking to us and not hear the word of God and what he has to say to us. So that's uh, our warning, our reminder as we open the book of Micah. We've finished the book of Micah. Wonderful that we've been doing this series. Uh, I haven't been doing it. You've been doing this series um, in Micah, this 8th century prophet from Israel. Uh, And we reached the end of the series in this final cycle of judgment and hope. He begins in chapter 6. It would be great to get those Bibles open and have a look here. He begins in chapter 6 essentially with a mock trial, a pretend law case where uh, God says to Micah, right, you're going to be the prosecutor and you're going to hold the people to account. You're going to uh, take them to court. The whole people of the whole nation of Israel, you're going to take them to court. Uh, well, in an ancient uh, legal trial, there were certain routines you would go through. I was on a jury once. It was a very dissatisfying experience. Um, this is not really important, but very dissatisfying because we didn't get to convict the guy. He fired his lawyer just as we were about to uh, pass the guilty verdict. Uh, it was a mistrial, and so we all went home and there was no justice. Uh, it was very disappointing, but it was good to see the routines and the rhythms and the speeches that go into a trial to understand how it works. Because what we have uh, in every culture is ways of doing justice. And Micah here is using the form of a law trial to make a point. All right, just as you would in an ancient law case, he calls the witnesses. Now, who is going to be the witnesses in a trial between God and his people? Well, the mountains, that'll do. So the mountains are the witnesses and God is the judge and the complainant also. Right, so you know which way it's going to go. Anyway, he stands up and he says, my people... Normally, this is the section of the trial where you review the history so far. What's happened in our relationship to get us to this point that we're going to court? Well, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. It's a bit snarky, actually. It's a bit of an ironic edge to his complaint. This is going to be a messy divorce between God and his people. We can tell that already. I brought you up out of Egypt, the Lord says, and redeemed you from the land of slavery. In other words, what I've done to you is actually nothing but good. I've done my part of the deal. More than that. I've brought you from being slaves in Egypt to being free people in the land. And yet, how have you treated me? How, what have you done? 
They should know, uh, having established this relationship, they should know what the Lord requires of them. They should know his standards by now because he's been revealing it to them throughout their whole journey which is recounted there all the times he's saved them from destruction. They should know about his trustworthiness but also about his character, that he cares about how they behave and how they treat each other. And in particular, they should know that God is no fan of empty religion. God is no fan of empty religion. At this point, the uh, law trial changes scene and there's someone coming, say, to a priest asking what they're meant to do. With what shall I, become, with what shall I come before the Lord? Verse 6. And bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That's a stupid question, really. Of course that's what you do. It's like your, your waiter coming out and saying, shall I come before you with your mains? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's why I'm here. But actually, that outward religion, that outward worship, not bad, but it's not all there is to worshipping God. Religious ceremony alone is not what God is after. He wants more from their relationship. What does he want? Well, glad you asked. Verse 8. He has shown you, mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Does he want thousands of litres of olive oil? Does he want you to sacrifice your children in the fire? No. Here's what the Lord requires of you. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. What does that mean? That's the famous verse. Uh, Many Christian charities have used this as their motivation. That's fantastic. But what does it mean in this context? To do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Well, a few things we can say about it in the the positive. It's a great way of summarising the whole Old Testament law, actually. It's a great way of summarising what God wants from leaders and governments, that they would do justice. That's their job, to deliver justice. It's also a great way of summing up what God wants us to do in every relationship, in our relationship with God, but also our relationship with each other. Contractually, I'm allowed one Hebrew word per sermon. Is that okay? I cleared it with Michael. Uh, one Hebrew word per sermon, I'm going to use it on this word because it's a beautiful word. Hesed. Right, when you might know the story of Ruth and Naomi, when Ruth sacrifices her life to go to a foreign land out of commitment and love for her mother-in-law, though she owes her nothing, how does the Bible describe that love of one woman to another? Hesed. When God is patient, though he has every reason to give up on people, over millennia he patiently does nothing but keep his side of the covenant, how does the Bible describe his character? Hesed. It is committed, covenantal, rigorous, hardcore love in every dimension. And God says not just to do that love, but to love that love. To love mercy, to love said, To make that something that we long to see in every relationship that we have a say in. And then the final one, I don't know what it means. Uh, it's a word that only appears here in this passage, humbly maybe, circumspectly, not in a showy way, but to walk with our God, to obey him, to walk with him without being proud and arrogant, to walk humbly with our God. Now, that's 
to define the word, but you want to really understand these phrases, what it means to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly, look at the opposite. Because the opposite is what they're about to talk about. What have the people actually done? Am I still, this is verse 10, to forget your ill-gotten treasures, you wicked house? And the short ether, which is accursed. Now, what is a, I'm just taking one example, what is the short ephah? Well, the short ephah is like uh, when you're buying a salad and they don't really pack it in very well. So you buy the large, but they've really given you a medium to small at best. Right? It's a stingy serving. And what the short ephah, ephah is like a barrel uh, quantity. So you buy an ephah of flour and they give you a small to medium ephah. It goes on and talks about um, unjust weights. And it's not just because they're really interested in uh, you know, standard metric measurements. This is a matter of justice, right? Because people used to have two sets of weights in their shop. You know this, right? Very clever when you think about it. One set of weights when you're buying and one set of weights when you're selling. And you can work out which was the heaviest, right? Basically, they're ripping each other off. And God hates it. Then he talks about uh, from dishonest business people to violent rich people. All right? Both hands are skillful in doing evil. I'm in chapter 7 now, verse 3. The rulers demand gifts, the judge accepts bribes, the powerful dictate what they desire and they all conspire together. <coughs> Do you know the powerful still dictate what they desire today? Did you know that? I think of the Crown Casino every time I drive past it who were handed down a record $120 million, I think it was, fine for basically exploiting problem gamblers. And the reason they exploit problem gamblers is because I think it's on average about 40% of gambling revenue comes from problem gamblers, right? So if you don't exploit problem gamblers, that's a business problem. And they were found, like many of our casino operators, to be unfit to hold a casino licence. After 12 years of exploiting problem gamblers, a royal commission, the regulator stepped in, their licence was taken away. In fact, they were deemed to be unfit to hold a licence. Now, here's the thing. If I told you that the government had found me unfit to hold a motor vehicle licence and then you saw me driving around next week, you'd think, that's odd, wouldn't you? But you know what? I knew they were going to get the licence back to open the Sydney Casino because you know, it was sitting there, unable to be used because they'd had their licence taken away. I knew that they would open it, and they did this year in August, September, because the unjust dictate their desires and the powerful get away with it. And I think of the people I've sat next to at the pokies putting their last welfare check in as their family starves. I think of the young friend of my brother who just got his life back on track and then in one night, under the watchful eye of a Woolworths employee at a pub, gave his last paycheck away and went home to try to kill himself. The unjust and the rich exploit the poor. The final thing that talks about moving from structural injustice and the rich and powerful is just to the relational exploitation. In my experience, people either love the like, structural injustice uh, kind of stuff or they are more into like, the personal um, kind of injustice stuff. God cares about both, right? He doesn't want you just to rail against structural injustice, so that is a good thing to do. He also wants you to be aware of how you treat 
the people in your life. Because it's the people closest to you that you often do the most damage to. For instance, if you can put, this is verse 5, no confidence in a friend, even the woman who lies in your embrace guard the words of your lips. In other words, husband and wife are lying to each other. And it's often the people closest to us that we do the most damage to that way. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. What a picture of a breakdown of trust. If your words can't be counted upon, then no relationship is safe. We're getting a picture of what the reverse of this Micah 8.6 looks like. But there's one more picture that I really want to pick up on, which is um, kind of a bit of an obscure reference, but worth following up. Uh, verse 16 of chapter 6 talks about observing the statutes of Omri and the practices of Ahab's house and all their traditions. Who are these people? Ahab and Omri. Well, they're some of my favourite villains in the whole Old Testament. You read about it in 1 Kings 16. Essentially, they were famous for two things. They were northern kings. Um, Now, remember, kind of about um, uh, in the 10th century BC, the kingdom of Israel divided in two and you have the Northern Kingdom, which is mostly bad all the time, and you have the Southern Kingdom, which is bad a lot of the time and not quite as bad. Just think New South Wales, Victoria. The really evil one and the not-so-evil one. I'm from there, so I can say that. Anyway, so you have a Northern northern Kingdom. And you have these people, um, this guy Omri gets in charge. Now, Omri wasn't the king. He killed someone to become king. And that's sort of how it works in the Northern Kingdom. He had a son called Ahab. And um, this is a, a, a kind of a crazy time in the northern uh, tribes. One of the, the guy before Ahab lasted seven days before someone took him out. Right? So we're talking like even worse than British politics at this point in terms of the length of tenure. It is chaos there. Anyway, Ahab, son of Omri, becomes king for 22 years. So he has a good innings, actually, for a northern king. But there's one criteria that the Bible wants to measure them on, and that is, did they lead people closer to God or further away from God? And on that score, Ahab gets a very bad mark because he takes them not just to idolatry level one but to idolatry level two. You know there's levels of idolatry? There are levels of idolatry. They were on level one, which is they were worshipping the right God in the wrong way. That's what they were. They were worshipping the right God, still Yahweh, but the wrong way. They were making up their own traditions. That's bad. Ahab's like, we can do better, by which I mean worse which is we can take it to the next level. And what he does is he marries a woman called Jezebel, who is my favourite villain of the Bible. Jezebel is awesome. Uh, Get out of your mind any sort of like, um, anyone have the Jezebel spirit? That's an old book. No, good. Um, She's been like taken up in popular cultures like a seductress, um, kind of a loose woman. She's nothing like that. She is awesome in an evil way. She is super efficient, calculating, uh, an impressive, impressive person, except she's on the wrong team. And what she does is she brings in Baal worship in the Northern Kingdom. Right? She's from another country. She brings Baal worship, worshipping the storm god. And people love it. They love worshipping Baal. Why? The economy. Baal is the storm god. And so if you worship him, he promises, Jezebel promises, that there will be rain and your crops will grow and the economy will go great. Right? So the, the promise of Baal worship under Jezebel and Ahab, that is all about the economy. It's all about this promise that if you worship this God, things will go well for you. Now, it's a complete lie. 
Idolatry always is, but it's a good lie. And it gets them. And that's the same lie that we always fall for, isn't it? Like, if you sacrifice your faith for your career just for a little while, your life will go well. If you pursue that bad relationship, you'll be happy. It's the same old lie. You worship the storm god, things will go well for you. And they fall for it. That's the vertical dimension of what's going on in the northern kingdom. Between them and God, they're leading people away from God. But you know what? There's actually a horizontal dimension as well. And God cares about both. Here's the horizontal dimension. And it all has to do with a vegetable patch. There's this guy called Naboth. And he has a vegetable patch. He has a field. And he has the misfortune of putting his field, where his field is, near Ahab's house. Ahab, bad king, married to Jezebel. Ahab's like, I really want that field. I'm going to buy that field from Naboth. And Naboth, who's a nobody, by the way, so the king is coming to him and saying, we want your field. Naboth's like, man, I can't sell you my field. It's my ancestral inheritance. That's literally not something I can sell. And so Ahab goes home sad and he's moping around the palace for a while and Jezebel's like, what's wrong with you? He's like, you didn't sell me the field. And Jezebel's like, for goodness sake. And in an afternoon, she deals with it. She sends a letter, forges her husband's signature, sends a letter getting Naboth in trouble. Naboth gets executed and Jezebel comes back, you can have the field, honey, it's all dealt with. You pathetic man. Are you the king of Israel or not, she says. She is someone to reckon with. And you know what? No one cared. This is the king, this is the queen, and and nobody lost his field. No one cared about this. No one who knew about the injustice did anything, except God. And so actually God sends the prophet Elijah to go and confront Jezebel and Ahab. And he, he says to them, you have killed a man and taken his property. God cares about this stuff. He doesn't just want the right worship. He wants justice. And I find, friends, to be honest with you, I find this a really uncomfortable story to tell standing where I'm standing. You might know this story already. The, um, the story of John Batman. You know the story of John Batman? Uh, he was um, a, a, a coloniser, settler, uh, he was in Tasmania originally and he applied to get some land in New South Wales but he was turned, turned down. So he took a ship up to uh, what now is Melbourne. And he arrived here in Melbourne and he said, this is going to be a great place to have a, a, a town and I'm going to call it Batmania. Okay, so what a lost opportunity, friends. We could have been called Batmania. Uh, instead we went with Melbourne. Anyway, he's in Batmania and he enters into negotiations with the Kulin people, uh, the Kulin uh, nations. On the 6th of June, uh, 1835, on the banks of actually Mary Mary Creek, he uh, signs a treaty with some of the uh, elders offering 40 blankets, 30 axes, 100 knives, 50 scissors, plus handkerchiefs, flour and shirts in exchange for Melbourne. Now, it's much debated what this arrangement meant and the signatures are weirdly, kind of suspiciously forged uh, and it's Almost certain. It's completely certain that the uh, uh, elders were not agreeing to sell their land. They would not have agreed to sell their land. They didn't. But anyway, uh, the Wurundjeri el- uh, leaders uh, agreed probably to safe passage in exchange for this, uh, these handkerchiefs, etc. Um, he took that as a, a treaty giving him the land of Melbourne, but it didn't matter in the end anyway because the, the governor deemed the treaty invalid 
because the Aboriginal people had no claim over this land that belonged to the Crown. From that point onwards, European settlers violently cleared this land, now called Melbourne. Uh, leaders of the resistance were captured and the remaining survivors were rounded up and forcibly resettled in Healesville. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? You have killed a man and taken his field, says Elijah. As Peter Adam says, the emeritus vicar of St Jude's Carlton, Australia today is based on theft of land. Old sins cast long shadows. I don't know what to do with that, but I do know that one way we can start is by repenting and listening. I do commend to you the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which you can find online and read that, to listen to what Aboriginal Australians want us to hear and think about. For now, we learn from Ahab and Jezebel some very important lessons about the horizontal and the vertical. Firstly, the vertical. Worshipping the wrong God or the right God in the wrong way is absolutely unacceptable. And it leads very quickly to the other dimension, which is the horizontal, which is the oppression of the powerless and injustice. As Christians, we tend to like one of these or the other. We tend to be focused on one or other of these. We're either the social justice Christians or we're the kind of get our worship right Christians. Can I say that there's no choice there? You have to do both because God cares about both and, in fact, they go together. To worship God has always been both directions. Uh, well, the verdict comes in and it's not good. And Ahab, uh, sorry, not Ahab, <laughs> different story. Micah has a choice. Am I going to plead guilty or not guilty? Right? Everyone who stands before you know, a magistrate has the choice. You know, do you plead guilty or not guilty? Uh, the, the man in the trial where I was a juror, he pleaded not guilty. What are you going to plead? What's Israel going to plead? What should Micah plead? Well, Micah pleaded guilty because he acknowledged that the sin, his own sin, but also the sin of the people that he was a part of, was indisputable. And so he pleaded guilty. He saw the coming judgment. He'd seen the northern kingdom destroyed already and he knew God wasn't messing about. Moses had a simple rule. You obey, you stay. You disobey, you don't get to stay. And he knew what was coming. And he says in verse 8, Don't gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. Because I have sinned against him. Guilty. I will bear the Lord's wrath. And yet, there is a source of hope. Until he pleads my case and upholds my cause, He will bring me out into the light and I will see his righteousness. Why? Why is he willing to plead guilty and put himself on the mercy of this judge? Because he knows this judge and it's God and he is merciful. Who is like you, God? Verse 18. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot. 
and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. So Micah advises to plead guilty. How do you plead? I've got a friend um, who was pretty sure, like he was all for Jesus and he was all for the Bible, but Jesus was for those other people. He said to me, very honestly, he just didn't see the need for forgiveness. He hadn't done anything wrong. He was pleading not guilty. I have great concern for him. I think he's kidding himself. So what are you, what are you going to plead? Guilty or not guilty? But if you plead guilty, because let's face it, I mean, I don't live up to my own standards, let alone God's half the time. We've all done things we're not proud of. We're all part of things that aren't good. But if you plead guilty, you know the judge and he is merciful and he will throw your sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that great? And that's the final moment of hope. We know who he is. We know what he likes to do and he will have compassion on us. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray. We're actually in a moment also going to do communion, which is a great time to confess our sins. Will you pray with me? as we finish off Micah. Our Father, uh, you are our hope. Our confidence doesn't come from looking forward or looking within, but for looking up. Our confidence comes from looking to who you are and to what you have done. Thank you that you will have compassion. You delight to have mercy. You don't stay angry forever. You pardon sin and you forgive our transgressions. And I pray that you would help us to be honest with ourselves and with others about who we are and that you would help us to delight in knowing that our sin, though overwhelming, has been thrown into the depths of the sea. Thank you that in Jesus' name this is true. Amen.